Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 114 of the Mandolin's Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Happy birthday to Scott and everybody over there at The Mandolin Cafe. Yesterday was their birthday. Uh, tell them Mandolin wouldn't be the same without that website, so thank you to Scott and everybody over there, and happy birthday, y'all. Uh, yesterday, I also got to see Chris Thiele at the Charleston Music Hall do his solo show. I want to thank Dave Cinco for the sweet seats, um, and Chris for an incredible show. Um, you never know what to expect when you go to a solo mandolin show. I mean, you know, Thiele's always going to be incredible, but he's doing all sorts of cool stuff, man. He actually was doing some uh, some finger picking, and uh, I guess you would call it hybrid picking, guitar playing with the pick and then using his fingers as well. It was it was incredible. Time flew by, and uh, he seemed to be having a good time as, long as, as well as the crowd. So what a good time. So thank you to Dave for that. I also just got back from Michigan. Uh, thank you to anybody who listens to this who came out to the shows in Bay City, or in Ferndale, they were a blast. Um, man, uh, I'll be posting some video clips and things from that here pretty soon. We had a really, really good time, and the crowds were just just outrageously incredible, um, especially Friday night. It was it was wild, man. So thank you guys so much. Hope to be taking the show more on the road here in the future, and um, I have a pretty big announcement to make, um, but I can't make it until December 14th for a show in Charleston. So I'm looking forward to that. So thank you, everybody. Also, I want to thank you to the people from Patreon who um, I have a couple thank yous, actually. I've got Michael, who actually went and did the whole year. So thank you, Michael, for doing that. And I also want to thank Stuart, who um, raised their pledge from the $4 to the $8. So thank you so much, you guys. That stuff really, really helps out. I appreciate it. If you enjoy the podcast, want to help out a little bit financially, you can go over to Patreon.com and you can sign up. There's multiple levels, one, two, three, four, eight, and 10 dollar a month and um, I'm actually going to put a donation thing I keep saying this I'm going to put a donation box on my uh, website as well so you can do that as well if you use PayPal and don't want to use Patreon so and you can also support the podcast for free just by telling all your friends by subscribing by leaving a comment on iTunes and by following me on Instagram and Facebook uh, I've got Roger Simonoff this week. Man, I, I, I it's always exciting to talk to Roger. This guy is knowledgeable, and he's got a fantastic story about some work he did when he consulted with Gibson. It's This is a good one, man. we got some Bill Monroe sightings and, and all sorts of really interesting information. But before that, I want to thank my sponsors this week. Uh, Peghead Nation, they have the streaming video courses for mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, bass, and you can learn bluegrass, old-time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. Who, you ask? Why, Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning. From beginner to advanced, they got it all. The courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get the first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com. Use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And be sure to check them out on the Instagrams as well. Also, also Ear Trumpet Labs, speaking of celebrating birthdays, Ear Trumpet Labs are celebrating 10 years of hand-building microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed have great feedback rejection for live use in the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments, whether for a single source like mandolin or single miking a full string band. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. 
You should also check out their Facebook as well. And Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player right there in Austin, Texas. So thank you so much to my sponsors. Thank you to everybody for listening. I truly, truly, truly appreciate it. You have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Let's get into this interview with Roger Simonoff. This is a good one, y'all. Cheers, everybody. All right. Now it's my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Roger Simonoff. Hey, Roger, how's it going? Hey, Daniel. How are you doing? Doing good, man. Good. Good to hear from you. Yeah, same here, man. It's been a minute for sure. And when we left off last time, we never got a chance to talk about um, you have a really great Gibson story. And and I, yeah. it's been on the back yeah. of my mind to get to it and get to it. And then Thank we've you. been corresponding. And I'm like, man, you know what I'll do? This will be the perfect time to get it in there. And yeah. oddly enough, after your episode, I got, I would say, three or five, three to five emails of people saying, oh, you should have Roger tell you about his his Gibson story <laughs> you know, or, well, or variations of that email. I'm like, I've already got it noted. Yeah. So, so well, cool. Yeah, yeah man. I'm real happy to share it. It's a great, it's a great story. It has some fun twists in it. And um, I'm sure that um, your listeners would love to hear more about it. So how did you, how did you come about being a consultant for Gibson? So in 1973, I was awarded a U.S. patent for a truss rod design that I did. And um, I had interfaced with Bruce Bolin, B-O-L-E-N, who was the vice president of product development for Gibson at the time. And he was also the guy who was Les Paul's liaison uh, into the plant. So um, and aside from which, Bruce was their demo artist and is an amazing, amazing guitarist. And I met with Bruce several times at NAMM shows and talked about a patent and Bruce as a guitarist always wanted a fretboard that would be straight and beautiful and perfect. I mean, to him, nothing was more important on the guitar than a fretboard that worked. And he was excited about the patent and he brought me out to, um, to meet with him at Gibson's uh, corporate corporate plant in Lincolnwood, Illinois. At the time, Gibson was owned by Norland industries and they had their main offices out on North Cicero and in Lincolnwood. And I brought out several prototype necks and showed them how the truss rod worked. And and within three or four weeks, I had a contract to um, to license that patent to Gibson. So that started to bring me into the plant in Kalamazoo. I was living in New Jersey at the time. Started to bring me in the plant in, uh, in Kalamazoo. And Bruce wanted me to do a thorough job on truss rods. He wanted me to do an entire analysis of Gibson's history from the very first truss rod that was designed by uh, Ted McHugh that went into the, the in fact, they started in, in the early banjos and then the F5, L, in the master model F5 line. Um, so I ended up going out to Kalamazoo pretty often, at the time, maybe once every two months. And then I had another couple designs that I, that I did, a component guitar and some other stuff. And I, I don't mean to sound like I'm bragging. I almost feel like I'm, I don't want to say me too much or I did, but I have to do this to tell you the story. And um, and they were then licensed by Gibson also. So I was going to Gibson almost monthly, taking a trip out of Newark and flying uh, uh, North Central Airlines from from uh, at, I'd fly from, from Newark into Detroit and then take North Central Airlines into Kalamazoo, a puddle jumper they had yeah. back in the day. And before you knew it, I was back and forth to Kalamazoo working on about five projects, going back almost – Every two or three weeks, um, just staying overnight at the Holiday Inn on down in Burdick in, uh, in Kalamazoo and going to the plant and then flying back out the next day. So during that time, I had the chance to meet with a lot of people there that were involved in 
several different aspects of the company and had the chance to to share my my vision that Gibson had to think about what it was doing back in the earlier years, in the early banjo line and the early mandolin line, when especially during the time when the heralded master model instruments, the L5 guitar, or the H5 mandola, the F5 mandolin were being produced. And um, and I had I had interest from a lot of people, but the the interesting part of this was that even though Bruce Boland would listen to me, and even though I had the ear of Dave Sutton, who was the marketing manager for Gibson, and Tom Putan, who worked for him, and a couple other people in the plant, and at least had an exciting talk with people like Julius Belson, who was the historian at the time. He'd, he'd be at the plant about every other day because he only lived about half a mile away. Um, and it sort of always evoked interesting conversation, but I think the people I spoke to realized that it wasn't their core business. It wasn't, it wasn't where the solid bodies were being sold and the, and the hundreds of instruments they were building you know, a day. It, was, it just didn't fit. Um, I got to a point at one time that um, I had talked about it so much that the, the then president, Stan Rendell, who retired, I think, in 76, um, somewhere in 70, 75 or so, called me into his office and told me to sit down. At his, and I sat in front of his desk and he just read me the riot act on how I've been talking. <laughs> um, you, you wouldn't believe he was mad. Um, the good news was I was a consultant. I had only my magazine to think about from an income and I didn't, I didn't necessarily need to be there. So I wasn't worried about being fired. Right, right. But he... <laughs> He kind of, I'm causing too much disturbance and too many people are talking about building these instruments. And he had a, behind his desk, he had, I don't remember whether it was an F7 or an F12, but he had a, he had a mandolin that was the gaudiest thing I've ever seen in my life. You know, those early ones that had a completely yellow soundboard with dark black sunburst edge. And, and they just, it's the only thing that he could fit on this little cadenza behind his, uh, his desk. It was on a little stand, and he grabbed it by the scruff of the neck and turned around to me. He said, this is the finest mandolin in the whole world, and went on to tell me how Gibson can't build anything better than this, and this is as good as they get. And so that he said, I just don't want you talking about it anymore. So, okay, no problem. So <laughs> I quietly talked to people about it because it was still part of what I felt they had to do. As it turns out, um, Rendell left in 70s. He retired in 76. And then um, there was another plant manager who took over who was Tom Fetters. And I started to talk to Tom a little bit about it, but he was there a short period. He left, I think, the next year in 77 or so when Carl Spinoso came in as plant manager. And Carl was sort of interested, but my discussions on almost a monthly basis always fell in deaf ears with the exception of Stan, who once told me to shut up, everyone else kind of listened. It was a good, uh, it was hard to take, but I kept, I kept prodding, you know, just going forward. The, the fun thing was that a guy named Jim Derlou, who I absolutely love, Jim is still around and part of the Heritage Guitar Company that's still in the original Gibson building in Kalamazoo. Um, Jim Derlou was brought, but he was at, he was at Gibson originally and I think he left in 70 or 71 to go to Guild in Rhode Island. And then Gibson brought him back in 74 to be the project engineer for, Nash for, for the move to the Nashville plant. And he was going to, he was going to, they were planning years ahead for this move. He was going to be the one who would, 
who would decide when things would be moved, what lines would come up, um, where instruments could temporarily be built during time that Gibson wasn't building them, like the F5 mandolin that went off to Flatiron for a while, um, and things like that. And he became the assistant plant manager working with uh, Carl Spinoso. And I had bent Jim's ear for a while. He was he was the one guy really perked up interest. He thought it was pretty cool that Gibson should take a look at what it was doing, should always take a look at what it was doing. In fact, he remember him telling me that Gibson, that any company should always take a look at what they did before they were successful and see how they could leverage it going forward. Um, I, I used to, I thought that Jim was one of the most incredible plant managers I had ever met in my life. And every morning when I get there with, if I'm sorry, every time I get there and come in in the morning, he'd say, come on, grab your coffee. Let's go. And we, we'd walk back to the plant and go past um, the, the, the plant guard's name was Clarence. I'll never forget him because um, he'd always say, good morning, Mr. Rogers. He called Mr. Rogers like the guy. Good morning, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> And we'd grab our safety glasses from Clarence and go back to the plant. And every morning, Jim, first thing in the morning, would go to different parts of the plant each different day and say hello to people. How are you doing? How's your kids? How are your kids doing in school? And just check in with people, which I always thought was an incredible way of him touching the people in production without, like, being on their shoulder. He'd just be a hello, and they always knew that Daddy cared, and I just felt that he respected him forever about that. So... Make a long story short, and, and this is a real long story, and I'm going to try not to make it short. <laughs> but but um, things as things went on, I got a, I finally got a letter. This is in days prior to um, to email, of course, and and even prior to cell phones. On August 31st in 77, because I have the letter in front of me, I got a a letter from um, from Jim Derlew that wanted to have a planning meeting to talk about original products. It was supposed to be a slideshow. And with a very focused agenda, that's all it said on it. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't find out till later that I was the one doing the slideshow and <laughs> I was the one preparing the focused agenda. But anyway, it was a planning meeting with slideshow and a focused agenda um, to talk about early instruments and involved Carl Spinoza, who was the plant manager, Jim Delu, the assistant plant manager, me, a guy named Bill Halsey, who is an incredible mandolin maker and violin bow maker who was living in Kalamazoo at the time and then... I think somewhere in the 80s, uh, Bill moved up to Vermont or New Hampshire or somewhere and then moved back to Kalamazoo. Um, a guy named Abe Wechter, who was a consultant like me. In fact, Bill was a consultant also there. Um, Abe Wechter, who was a consultant, and Jules Belson, who was the company historian. And I called Jim the day after I got the letter and said, is he sending out the agenda? And he said, no, no, you're you're preparing the agenda and you're preparing the slideshow. I thought, Oh, great. So I developed the slideshow of, uh, that was, that was comprised of slides on banjos and mandolins and brought them out in a carousel. Do you remember the Kodak carousel? Oh yeah. Where you click it and the little slide would go around. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think I still have the, the slide rack with all the slides in it. Um, and, um, I brought out slides of original F5 mandolins and original um, Gibson banjos and Granadas and Bellavoces and, you know, just pictures of pegheads and it was all the, de- all the detail stuff. I mean, I, we didn't have anything there to play for people to hear. This is more about what they look like and bring uh, people up to date. Um, and everyone sort of thought it was a good idea and we should think about it. How can we implement it? How can we, 
go back to what we did and which part of the line should we start on. And that was sort of it for a while. It just went from August of 77. So on April 6, 78, I get another letter from Jim Drew. Um, and this time it involves Bruce Bolin, who was the uh, vice president of product development uh, for the company, the guy I mentioned earlier. Um, Tom Putan, who was the um, assistant marketing manager for all of Gibson, Jim Delu himself, Jim Beals, who was in charge of engineering in the plant, I think, a guy named Gerald Burgeon, who worked on prototype development in their little plant, um, Bill Halsey, who was the um, the mandolin maker, bow maker I told you about, and Abe Wechter. And um, I had no idea what was on the agenda. It's just we need to have a meeting at Billy Flynn's on that night at uh, April 6th. And Jim Derlew made the led the meeting, and he started out by saying, okay, we need to build three mandolins by June 15th. Now, this is April 6th. Oh, geez. <laughs> April 6th. Need to build three brand-new, fully redesigned, redrawn mandolins by June the 15th. Um, I was going to be the product lead, Abe Wechter, who now owns Wechter Guitars and is, builds a line of electric and acoustic instruments. Um, Abe was going to be my liaison to the plant since I was in New Jersey and Abe was in Kalamazoo and Bill Halsey was going to be the draftsman. And the first thing that Bill and I did was spend an afternoon and go through all the flat files here and pull out early drawings. And we found some of the greatest stuff in the world. We found the original drawing for the fern, well, well, the original drawing for the full flower pot for the F4, then the drawing for the flower pot with the truss rod cover, which is a different full flower pot because the, uh, the truss rod cover covered up the bottom of the original flower pot, so I had to make a smaller flower pot. Found the original drawing for the fern inlay for the F5, um, for the bridge, for the soundboard shape, for a whole like a whole bunch of early drawings that were just incredible going through this stack of stuff. And then using mail as a vehicle to move things back and forth, um, Bill started to draw plans for the F5 um, using an F5 mandolin I had to get things like the F-hole shape and size and location um, and a whole bunch of details. And he drew everything, peghead shape, bridge, fretboard, um, position of the dot inlays, of course, I mean, that's kind of basic, but F-holes, bracing pattern. Um, and we moved forward to build three prototypes. And we were going to tap tune them, which was very important to me because I, that's a part of the science of mandolin building, you probably know I'm re really, really focused on. Absolutely. And um, so we had these three instruments. They were built by the three luthiers who were working in the mandolin department at the time. And by the way, the most mandolin luthiers Gibson ever had after the 1930s were only three working in that department on time. But then it was Wilbur Fuller, Aaron Cowles, and Dick Doan. Those three guys, each one of them built an F5. And... Um, we brought them uh, when the soundboards were, when the necks weren't attached, because we, oh, I'm sorry, the necks weren't attached to these instruments earlier. I'll talk about the necks in a minute, because that's kind of an interesting story too. Um, when the soundboards were, with, were attached to rims and the tone bars were attached, we had a meeting uh, again at the plant, as this was probably, I don't know the date of this, um, but I would say, um, it was probably at the end of June or in the beginning. It would be in the beginning of June because they were finished in a real rush to get to the June NAMM show. So somewhere early in June. And we had, we had the, the three of them 
come in, the uh, Wilbur, Aaron, and, and Dick come into this one room in the old building on the first floor. And Jim Derlew and Bruce Bowen was there and Jim Beals was there. And I was going to demonstrate how tap tuning worked. And I was all so excited. I brought my little piece and strobe tuner with me and had time early in the morning to set the room up. And, and I found a piece of carpeting to put up behind the bench so that I could damp some of the sound. And so here I'm all this, you know, ready to fly kind of guy. And I'm get the mandolins together. I start carving braces and tap tuning. And my little tuner shows me that the tone bar is an A, which is really cool. And I say, here you go. It came to an A. And I shave off more wood and it's still an A. And I shave off more wood. And the tone's supposed to be dropping now as I'm shaving off wood. And it's still an A. And this happened until I was almost done with all the tone bars on that one soundboard. <laughs> and, you know, I wish I could laugh about it as you are because I was – it was, I know it was I know it was early June, but I was sweating not because of the heat. I was sweating because I was like freaking out, right. and this thing was not working. Oh. All of a sudden, much to my luck, the buzzer goes off. It's ten o'clock in the morning, and it's time for a break because Kalamazoo Gibson plant was a union plant. And Jim DeLuke comes over to me, pats me on the back. Everybody leaves. He says, "Look, take it easy. I know you'll get this right. I believe you can do this." We'll be back in 20 minutes. Everything's okay. Just, and I'm thinking, yeah, right. Everything's okay. So he leaves. I go to tap one of the other tone bars, and all of a sudden now it's an A sharp on the other mandolin. I think, wait a minute. This was an A like 15 seconds ago. It's now an A sharp. It's it it's stiffer than it was before. And I realized that the ambient noise of the planer in the mill room, which was just outside the back door of the old building. It was, it was in the space between the old building and the new building, if you've ever seen any pictures. The planer was an A-sharp, it was an, an A planer. It went <laughs> to key of A, and it was just enough ambient noise. It was loud enough with enough ambient noise that when I banged on the soundboard with my little tap tune hammer, this little Peterson strobe, strobe tuner lit up with an A because it heard the planer. Oh no. <laughs> so then I was able to get notes. I ran out and I got hold of Jim and I said, I got it. Where can we move? I, there's something in the building that was making noise. By the way, I didn't find out it was the planer until later the day, in the day. I realized it was machine noise. So I said, come on, we'll, we'll move to the conference room. So we moved over into the, the new building, the new part the, to the left, as you look at the Gibson plant to the, to the left of uh, the old building. I set everything up in the conference room, start getting wood chips all over the floor and everywhere. But I was able to successfully on the other two show them how tap tuning worked. And they all were. And I felt hugely relieved. Yeah, I bet. Because I, I, mean, I was freaking – honestly, I was freaking out, Daniel, when this, when this wouldn't work for me in front of all these guys. Um, especially after all this work and after all my bravado and all my talk and I can't make <laughs> this thing happen, right? Well, we got it to work. Um, during the next uh, – th the next – that afternoon – I think that was the one – I think it was the one that Aaron Cowles was working on. He replaced the tone bars and we retuned it. So these three instruments get finished, um, and I'm excited to hear that they're going to the June NAM show. Uh, for for your listeners, NAM, N-A-M-M, -M, is the National Association of Music Merchants, which is the largest – which is the music association of the world. And in June of 78, I think they were having their 100 and – Ten, either the 101st, or, no, actually it was early now, probably their 90th annual convention. So they were around for decades. And it was at McCormick Place, which was the big convention center in Chicago. And um, we had to get uh, at least one of these three instruments was going off to 
to that show to be put on display. So um, in a, in a, only two of them made it there. Unfortunately, the one that um, Dick Doan was doing, something happened during finishing. It was had nothing to do with Dick. Uh, but Wilbur Fuller's and Aaron Cowell's mandolin got to the show. And um, in the beginning of, before the, before the, before their, their convention, they always did a sales meeting when they had their different groups from, from the Pacific Rim, from Europe, from uh, the United States and Canada come in and, and sales teams, because Gibson had fairly large sales teams then. And I did the presentation to them on this new instrument, what it meant, how the finish was different, hand rub finish, it was tap tuned, and all the sales pitch that goes with it. And then um, after uh, the meetings were over, um, Jim Derlew took called me into the, and this was at a hotel, by the way, called me into the adjoining room and said, we've got these two mandolins, which one do you want to put it up? And I said, well, I think this one's better. It was the one that Wilbur did. It was a, had a little better shape of the scroll. He said, okay. He said, and he handed me the other one. He said, here, this one's yours. Take it home. I said, man, I really appreciate that. But if we're going to do anything, I think this one's better. The one that Wilbur did, let's put it up. And he said to me, well, it's going to, you know, it's going to be on display for four days. It's going to get scratched. I said, I don't care. Let's put it up. So it was the one, the one that Wilbur did is the one that got put up on display at the show. And it's the one that they, I eventually got to take home, which I'm greatly appreciative of. It had the Gibson prototype stamp on the back of the peg head, and I still have it. That's awesome. It's a wonderful, wonderful instrument. So we go to the trade show and it receives a, you know, pretty good press. And I was, I was then over at my, my, um, uh, Fretz magazine booth. I'm sorry, my picking magazine booth. And I keep going back over to see what was going on. It was always, the mandolin was always off the rack in somebody's hands, which I like. Um, very interestingly, um, this was probably the only time that Bill Monroe had ever been to a NAM show because he was in Chicago at an event. Someone said, are you going to the music convention? He was able to get a pass to come in. And then uh, Bruce Boland came over to get me at my booth and brought me over so that um, I could be around with Bill Monroe while the, he was able to see it. And he, you know, Bill was, Bill was Bill. He liked it. He thought it was nice. <laughs> he thought it was this. And then he wanted to go off and look around at more stuff. So it was just a passing thing when Gibson had an opportunity to take some PR photos of, of Bill Monroe being at, you know, at their booth. Sure. Um, cutting to the quick on this two weeks after the NAM show, I get a call from Bruce that I have to come out to Lincoln Wood because they have to clear up some things on post NAM sales. So I'm on a plane two days later and I get into Lincoln Woods. I get fly in Chicago, go to Lincoln Woods, which is a neighbor, neighboring suburb. And sitting there in the, front of, in, the, in the front of a bunch of bean counters, and that's rude, and a bunch of accountants, sitting there, I'll let you cut, <laughs> sitting there, or, or not cut, sitting there in, the front, in, in front of a bunch of accountants and business people, and, and Dave Sutton, who's the marketing guy, and Bruce, um, they said something's wrong here. And uh, obviously, um, something happened because we've never sold this many mandolins at a trade show in our entire history. Wow. I said, like, what's wrong? He said, well, who's this dealer that bought 25 mandolins or 24? I'm sorry, 24 mandolins. No, I'm sorry. It was 25. I won't say who their name was, but they're on Long Island. But you can figure <laughs> it out from there. And, and Stan, I think Hap and Stan were still partners then, but um, Stan Jay and Hap Kuffner. Um, but they literally ordered 25 mandolins. They had another dealer who ordered one a month. They had a dealer who ordered one every other month. This never ever happened in their history. 
So I'm trying to name some dealers say, I have no idea who these dealers are. I'm not in the dealer business. I, I, I don't know. You're asking me questions I can't answer. The only thing I can answer is, look what happened when we built a better instrument. I mean, so they're saying, yeah, sure. So now you've got a company confronted with filling a lot of orders and not having any of the production tools to build them. Imagine, imagine the plight they're in. And the first price when it was hanging on the wall was $29.95. Within four or five or six months, it went to $39.95 because they're realizing they've got to cover their costs somehow. Right. So about a week after that, is this story too long and winded? No, no. As a matter of fact, I want to go back a minute and just say one of the things I don't think that was brought up was um, – they were they didn't have the stuff ready because the whole reason behind building this these mandolins was just for show. Yes. They had oh, no thank intention you. of thank you, thank you, yeah, thank you, thank they you. They had no intention of putting them out. I didn't know until the very end of the show when Jim Deleu gave me that mandolin and I said, Well, don't you need this for sales? He said, No, we're not really gonna be selling these. I thought you knew that. This is thank you thank you for that, Danny, for remembering that. He said, I thought you knew that this is just part of our back to the heritage marketing campaign. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what? Because they did a huge marketing campaign based on a lot of discussions that I hope, I think, I hope I sparked, but that Dave Sutton and Tom Putan did. And they ran ads in Pickin' Magazine and Guitar Player and Guitar World and um, about Gibson going back to its heritage, but they never built anything to go back to its heritage. They just marketed going back to the heritage. So here they are with orders to build a scat of mandolins and no way to carve the soundboards. Um, the necks, they, they had a bin of necks that had, they used an original mortise tenon joint for the neck, which actually is a, a lot of people complained about it, but it actually was a pretty good joint. The mandolin I have has that joint. It's never moved and never needed a neck set since. Um, and um, make a long story short, um, Jim calls me a couple weeks later, says, we got to get up on production on this. The, I, what I didn't tell you earlier in the story is the soundboards that we used, the soundboards and backboards that were on the three mandolins for the three prototypes we built came off of my carving machine oh, because wow. their patterns, I'll share with you, if you allow me the time, I'll share with you at the end. And please remind me why we had, why we couldn't use their patterns. So the first three mandolins had my soundboards and their wood but my carving soundboards and backboards on these mandolins. And Jim said, you've got the patterns, you're carving this stuff, so I'm gonna send you wood, you need to carve soundboards and backboards for me. So well, I'm not in that business, but you know, I, I'll do that. So um, he, I, he, they were sending me pallets of wood, of, um, which at the time was sycamore, not curly maple. Oh, no for kidding. Backboards. Oh, wow. Yeah, and sy sycamore is, and, and curly maple are very similar woods. Um, they, they both, Carry, they're both part of the Acer family, um, uh, but they're, they have a very there's this very difference in their grain. For for folks out there who have some of these mandolins, sycamore the, the the curly figure in sycamore is very even, and you can almost measure a half inch between every curl. It looks like someone drew the pattern with a pen or on a computer, whereas curly maple is very. Um, very irregularly patterned with different widths between the figure and um, they look, that looks quite different, but that was the way they were getting it at the, at the time. So, um, so I started carving soundboards and backboards for them. We had to use the original mortise and tenon necks because they had a bin that probably had 
I would guess it had 150 or 200 finished truss rotted necks without peghead veneers, but they were shaped and had the mortise joint on them and they weren't going to get rid of those. Um, it ended up that now we had to figure out how we're going to tap tune these because I, I, we had this noise problem. I asked Jim if we could build a, a soundproof room and no, that was out of the question. That wasn't going to happen. So he said, you have to figure some other way if you want to tune these mandolins, if you still think they should be tuned, um, that you need to figure some other way to tune them or, or you tune them. We'll send you tone bars and you tune them. And I couldn't do that because they had to be sanded first and everything. It was just, and it wasn't my business. I, it's something I couldn't in any way support them with. So I, de I developed a way of measuring the stiffness of the tone bars by, by how far the soundboard deflected under a load. And um, we know that the with a set of medium gauge strings on it, the soundboard on a mandolin deflects a specific amount under the 42 pounds of load of a of, of the bridge. And I developed a very rudimentary machine that I show in a book I have called The Art of Tap Tuning that measured how far the tone bars deflect on an F5 soundboard when a 45 pound load is placed at the bridge location. And their engineer under Jim Beals, who worked for Jim Beals, built this most incredible fixture that you could, you could latch a, an F5 soundboard into with full-size braces, turn it over so it was bra braces up. You put it in uh, face up, and then it would flip over and go down on four dial indicators that would be on the front and the front middle, back middle of of the two tone bars, and then the luther would just shave the tone bars until they could read the right deflection on the on the the um, the on the gauges on the dial indicators. That's amazing. And it was it was terrific, and it was incredibly accurate. And all of the mandolins that were built at Gibson. In fact, I'm sure your audience would be interested in this, but anyone who owns an F5L mandolin that was built at the Gibson plant from 1978 until instruments were built at Flatiron under Steve Carlson in 1983, right in the, I think, the I don't remember the month, but right in the middle of 83, I think, or, or early 83, um, all of those instruments were deflection tuned on this fixture. And they all sound, you get any two of them together and they have such very, very similar voice that it's like, to me, it's like amazing. So, um, this me, me, I was carving soundboards uh, for a long time. I moved to California in 1979, and I swear to you, absolutely true story. The day the moving van was at my house, moving furniture from my house into the moving van, this big truck pulls up with a skid of soundboards and backboards and talented. <laughs> and I called Delu and I said, Jim. You knew I'm, you know, I'm moving to California. Why are you saying in New Jersey? Well, you know, an answer like I don't know. That's was what they had out in shipping, and that so figure it out. So the funny thing, they backed the two trucks up to each other and just slid the the skid, the skid from the delivery truck because when they delivered to me, I didn't have a forklift truck. I had to disassemble the skid there and bring up you know ten soundboards at a time on oh, a dolly. Wow. So they just moved the whole skid right into my moving van and the very first thing i did when i got to california was before i even set up my clothes in my closet was set up the carving machine on the floor <laughs> of my garage carving these soundboards and backboards um anyway the rest of it the rest of it's pretty much history that those instruments um were always well received i think it fueled the at least charlie darrington bless his soul incredible builder and repairman and violin maker 
at least Charlie Darrington used to tell me that he felt that I fueled the rebirth of the mandolin for the company. And, and, um, I, you know, I believe the company did that because their history was always there. I didn't do much but be a pain in everybody's neck talking about it. <laughs> but, um, I think uh, to me, it's always been an exciting story about how they finally had a wake up call to, to build them right. And, and the audience will come to you. And it is the absolute thing that spurred Gibson moving forward um, in a, and I hate to say me doing it because I don't want to sound self-serving, please forgive me, but in another project that I spearheaded, because I then said, you know, if we can do this with the mandolins, we could do this with the banjos. And that's what brought about the Earl Scruggs banjo model and, and uh, going back to banjos the way they were done. That happened right in the bridge of moving to Nashville and, um, and continued in Nashville under the direction of Whitey Morrison, who was the plant manager in Nashville. And Jim Derlew did not move to Nashville when the plant moved to Nashville. He stayed in Kalamazoo with Randall Wall and um, I can't remember his name, another builder and started Heritage Guitars going back to their heritage, going back to the heritage, building Heritage Guitars in the old building uh, where these original Gibson instruments were built on uh, on 225 Parsons Street in Kalamazoo. So amazing you rented me out there's the whole story but i so appreciate you're asking about it and oh yeah i think it's a story to be told i think it's i think it's a real fun piece of history i just love the fact that they they just make these the assumption going in is they're making these mandolins so people can order them and then they build these mandolins and then they get all these orders like we had no we had no intention of building (laughs) more mandolins than that in that that amount of you know quantity do you have do, do you or I or we have time for me to add a little piece on this? Sure, yeah. Um, so one of the reasons that they couldn't carve soundboards in Kalamazoo, they had a wonderful pattern carver. It was a it would the pattern carver worked like it looked it was a, a machine that moved left and right and in and out, and as it moved across, there was a balance wheel on it that had a follower, a pattern follower. And on the other part of it was a carver. So what the follower saw was very lightly balanced. What the following wheel saw on the pattern, it moved both heads up and down to carve on the carving side. So it was almost like seeing two old record player phonograph arms moving up and down together, except one had a carver in it, the other had a pattern follower in it. Well, Stan Rendell got the idea back somewhere before he retired that to increase production of carving F5 soundboards, which, by the way, they did in spurts. The way they made necks and did a bin of necks, they would do a bin of soundboards and a bin of backboards so that they wouldn't be on and off and setting up the carver every day. That was that has always, and even to today, is that their process. So even though they'd only carve, like, maybe at the time, 20 soundboards that might last them a year, believe it or not, figure, do the math yourself, um, they would they realized that they needed to get time on that machine because it was carving other carved top and back guitars that they did. So um, Stan had the idea because the platen was so big that instead of carving one soundboard at a time from from neck from neck to tailpiece in that direction, the length of the instrument, the platen was big enough that we could turn two of these soundboards side by side. So it carve across the soundboard because the platen was big enough to take two F5 soundboards and two F5 backboards 
on one big mold. So they made up new molds to put two soundboards side by side. Get this, you're going to love this story. Well, the thing is, this tool was so lightly balanced that when the following wheel came across the recurve of the soundboard and down and over the top, down into the recurve at the other end, it would skip like a light record player needle. It would skip up in the air and dip down into the recurve of the next soundboard and cause a ding in the soundboard. Oh. And then it would come back the other way. It would skip out of the recurve and ding into the soundboard going the other way. So... So Stan had this, and this did come from Stan. Stan had this great idea that if you just fill in that recurve, get this, just fill in that recurve, that won't happen. <laughs> so if you take a look at the F5, F7s and 12s that were built from 70, and I might get my year wrong for the models because I don't have that in my memory. But in the late in the in the, in the mid seventies, you'll find a lot of them that had really really thick soundboards where there should be a recurve. You look in the F hole, it looks like the soundboard's a quarter of an inch thick, and that's why these instruments didn't work. The recurve came out because the carver would skip over the recurve of the other side. So oh, the wow. solution, instead of going back the way it was right, the solution was just fill in the recurve. Oh, jeez. <laughs> So anyway, that's how things sort of happened as they went along, I think, through their life. And they finally realized if you went back to tap tuning and, and really graduating these tops properly and hand coloring them and doing all the right stuff, you could really build a good instrument through the whole line, the L5s and banjo line and everything. And it was a real wake-up call. Yeah, that's amazing, man. Yeah, crazy, right? Yeah, that's awesome, man. Thank you so much for sharing this story. It's Just the opposite. Thank you so much for letting me do it. I really appreciate your allowing me to talk about it. It's a it's it's a highlight in my life having the opportunity to do this, and um, and I'm excited that that uh, you can allow your listeners to learn more about it. And I I thank you for what you're doing, Daniel. Oh man, thank you, Roger. I appreciate it. Can't do it without you guys. <laughs> you're the best. Thank you. All right, there you go, everybody. Thank you so much for listening once again. And uh, cheers. Have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Talk to you soon.